everybody you are listening to list it my show where me and a guest rank and list things in pop culture very excited about my guest today he is one of the funniest writers working there's a very very good chance that you've seen a lot of his work out there he just released his latest book new teeth which is centered on themes like uh uh, getting older and kind of growing up but it is a, a hilarious collection of short stories. If you've ever read his books, you know that you're in for a treat. He is also the creator of Miracle Workers, which season three just debuted on TBS. And uh, he has he's served as a writer for some of the funniest projects in Hollywood, including Saturday Night Live. He's worked on Pixar movies, The Simpsons, and his short story, Sellout, was recently adapted into the critically acclaimed comedy American Pickle, which stars Seth Rogen. And you can catch it now on HBO Max, a very busy guy but is taking some time to talk with us today. Simon Rich, welcome to Listed, man. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Dude, I'm really excited you're going to be on the show today. And we're talking about uh, of, of what I feel like is that our list is really fun. We're going to be talking about pop culture depictions of God, which I kind of feel like, you know, <laughs> with Miracle Worker season one, you kind of like set a new bar when you guys cast Steve Buscemi as, as God on that show. Tell me a little bit about that decision. Steve was great as, as God. Uh, not necessarily who uh, most people would picture in that role, but uh, I always, from the from the moment I started writing that character, uh, thought he'd be perfect. The uh, the god in that in, in in that show and in the the novel it's based on, he's kind of the uh, overwhelmed CEO. Yeah. Uh, he started Earth uh, a long time ago, and it just hasn't ever really worked out. There's a lot of problems. He's, he's got an overflowing inbox, and he's just had it. Yeah. And uh, uh, Steve Buscemi was was so great in that part, and and in all the other parts he plays. Yeah, on that show, it's such a cool idea for a show. And one cool thing about your work is it seems like there's really no topics that's off limits. Uh, but you know, there's a lot of writers, particularly on TV and film, who want to steer clear of like religion and God, just because. I mean, uh, unironically, it's like one of the sacred cow kind of conversation, you know, kind of topics that a lot of people want to stay away from. Why is it a topic that you've embraced in a way that's disarming and funny, but also really thoughtful? Well, I always have been interested in the character of God, um, and it comes from my Hebrew school education and uh, reading about the God of the Old Testament, the God yeah. of the Hebrew Bible, who is a very unpredictable yeah. uh, and and oftentimes unintentionally hilarious uh, figure. Uh, the My favorite passage about God is when he meets Abraham. And uh, Abraham uh, at the time is 99 years old and he's just minding his own business. And God suddenly appears to him and he says, I'm the Lord thy God. So Abraham is you know freaked out, but he accepts him and says, all right. And then the very next thing that God says is circumcise your penis. <laughs> he just goes right into it, straight into that. And uh, before Abraham can ask any kind of follow-up questions, he says, also circumcise all of the men in your household, including the servants. And it's the loyalty just, test right yeah, out of the gate. Yeah. Right off the bat. But it's it's like no, no segue yeah. No preamble. So he, he comes at you really hard in that book. And I always thought that was that was super funny. 
Coming from, you know, a religious background, you know, and, and, you know, and you write a show like Miracle Workers. So like I said, it's kind of a theme that kind of shows up throughout your work. What, what's been the, the feedback from people who maybe are kind of traditionally religious and, um, you know, don't typically um, think about God in terms of humor? What's been the reaction from some people who are maybe a little bit more, you know, conservative with their theological leanings? Right. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, um, we actually had a, a number of religious people working on that show, including in the writer's room. Um, and uh, we, we, it was never our intention to be like uh, purposefully offensive or uh, anti-religious. We are, yeah. we are really more trying to make kind of an existential show, a show yeah. that kind of gets at the insanity of what it is to be a, a human on planet earth where things seem really out of control. And uh a, a out to lunch Steve Buscemi God felt like a, a plausible explanation for why things might be the way they are currently. Well, and one thing I love about the show and in the in the the topic that we're going to talk about today is like you know there is sort of like the big G God that we learn about you know whether it's in Sunday school or kind of whatever you know someone's religious background might be, but then there's also sort of like the cultural constructs of what we think of God is, and I think a lot of that is informed. You know, you, you kind of take these twists on Renaissance arts and you see, uh, you know, the big bearded God show up in shows like The Simpsons or, you know, uh, uh, Stephen Colbert will bring in kind of that version of God. What do you think it is about that version of our idea of God, who is this, you know, supposedly all powerful being, you know, theologically, but we've kind of made him into this kind of pop culture character. What do you think about that kind of character that makes it so ripe for comedic commentary? Well, I always think that the uh, the more power somebody has, the the funnier it is when they have any kind of human flaws. You know, yeah. uh, like uh, I, on The Simpsons, it's so funny that Homer would be in charge of nuclear safety. That's an unbelievably high stakes, yeah, yeah. important important job. You know, yeah. he's got his, his finger on on you know on the button that's protecting <laughs> yeah. all of us from from instant death. And so, uh, when you have a character who's as august and powerful as, as God, you know, and you, you inject some, some flaws or frailty into him, it just, it just leads to a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, uh, Summer, I'm really excited to, to talk through your list. So let's go ahead and jump right in. Who do you have as number four on your list of your favorite pop culture gods? Okay. Well, I've got to go with the God in uh, the song. What if God was one of us yeah. by Joan Osborne, uh, <laughs> 1995 hit. I love this song as a kid. I uh, love the lyrics. Uh, I, I I don't know if I'll be able to quote them verbatim, but it's something like, what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus. Yeah. Uh, and I always thought that was really compelling, really interesting. Although yeah. I have one sort of quibble with the lyrics because later in the in the song, she sings, trying to make his way home. She's talking about God still uh, on the bus, trying to make his way home. No one calling on the phone, except the Pope maybe in Rome. Hmm. And at this point, I'm like, God should be asking the Pope for some money <laughs> because here he is, you know, he's riding the bus. Yeah. He's a slob, we're told. Yeah. So he's got like, a, you know, he's, he's struggling to, to find like a, a good wardrobe to wear and his human assistant, the Pope. Yeah. <laughs> uh, pretty well connected. Is, this guy is loaded. Yeah. This guy has a has a mobile named after himself, a glass Pope mobile. 
He's decked out in in unbelievably awesome outfits. <laughs> he lives in in the Vatican. He's surrounded by priceless art. He's not gonna and and God is is on the bus. You know, I I think um, I don't know. Maybe maybe God just is, is too is is too humble to ask. But I don't know. I, I always felt like that's. And I, and I don't feel like, you know, from my understanding, you know, he's not getting, it seems like the Pope isn't the only one hitting up God. It seems like that is a very, uh, uh, you know, non-busy God. The one, you know, my, my idea is, you know, his phone would be blowing up. He'd be, you know, he'd be silencing the Pope's calls if, but, you know, uh, you know, I I like the image though uh, of, of kind of a, a slobby dude who any of us or, you know, however you picture God that we could run into. That is, that is an interesting pick there. Thank you. Yeah, it's a great song. Oh, and it's dude, a totally underrated song too. Okay, I have one uh, that I that I I made my own little list here. Um, and dude, I was surprised when I was doing research of how many how many depictions of God there are in pop culture, especially how many oh, yeah. have kind of flown under the radar. I my first one is from a weird movie that came out in 1980 called In God We Trust. But the movie stars Andy Kaufman and Richard Pryor. And I'm like, how is how is this movie not a comedy classic? You got Andy Kaufman and Richard Pryor. But Richard mm-hmm. Pryor, Pryor plays like it's kind of aged pretty well, like conceptually, even though the production value of this film is doesn't really hold up if you watch clips on YouTube. But Richard Pryor plays a version of God who turns out to be like a computer algorithm. Um, and Andy Coffin plays a televangelist, but just the thought of Richard Pryor as a God, even if it's like a God with an asterisk because he's a computer God, it's too, someone has to remake this with a little budget because it's too good of an idea not to do it. Sounds incredible. I got to check that out. I haven't seen that. Yeah. A a very deep cut, but you can watch like clips on YouTube. I'll say this, uh, uh, it's better in concept than execution, but still you got to appreciate when someone takes a swing like that. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, so you got uh, What If God Was One of Us from the classic 90s song. What do you got for next on your list, Simon? Gotta go with the creepy six-year-old kid from the Twilight Zone uh, <laughs> who everyone has to be nice to so he doesn't wish them into a cornfield. Yeah. <laughs> I, d- I don't have the kid's name handy, but uh, it's it's uh, one of my favorite shows and one of my absolute favorite episodes is just, uh, I think it's called It's a Good Life. Okay. And it's just a uh, six-year-old boy. It's been remade uh, in various uh, incarnations of the Twilight Zone in subsequent decades. But he is essentially God. He's omnipotent. He can read minds. He can kill people at will. Yeah. And he's surrounded by uh, his his family and neighbors who are just desperately doing whatever they can to appease him and uh, so that he doesn't murder them. And <laughs> the reason why I really like it is because... Um, it's truly scary, very high stakes, yeah, and also not that far off from my experience parenting a, a four-year-old. <laughs> like, there's something like terrifying about I- I- endowing a child with the powers of God. Because the other thing too, that concept works both ways. If it's, I mean, you have like Damien. And sort of like, you know, what if, uh, uh, you know, like uh, the kid was like the devil. It's just a terrifying concept to think about kids. Oh, yeah. Kind of yeah. And I, I totally relate to it as a parent because I, I mean, I, I don't think like my four year old daughter, she cannot wish me into a cornfield, but she can make lunch into a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they the little bit of power because we were just talking before we started. I have young children too. The little bit of power they have, have they know how to yield. They know They're, how to use it. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. my yeah, my four year old is very. She can be very vengeful, uh, and uh, you know she's she 
she definitely knows how to how to how to smite us in her own way. It, it's it. I, I didn't realize you're a big uh, Twilight Zone fan. Oh yeah, big Twilight Zone fan. And a lot of the a lot of my um, uh, favorite short story writers uh, contributed to that show, either writing teleplays or, or yeah. the source material. People like Bradbury and Richard Matheson um, really were, and 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 Jerome Bixby, who wrote uh, the short story. That became that that episode. A lot, a lot of my favorite kind of surreal sci-fi writers uh, contributed. What did you have? You watched Jordan Peele's kind of new uh, take on the Twilight Zone? Yeah, I haven't seen all of it, but uh, I, I love what I've seen. And um, uh, super funny, brilliant writer Heather Ann Campbell. Yeah, uh, I've worked with one of, a friend of mine writes for that show, and yeah. uh, it's uh, it's so it's it's so cool that it's it stayed in the consciousness and that it keeps coming back. It's yeah. just such an amazing format. Yeah, it's such, and the other the other cool thing is how they're, and this is with a lot of sci-fi, but also with a lot of kind of religious writing, is you can use it as sort of a surrogate to make social commentary in really interesting ways. And obviously, Jordan Peele is very good at that. But when you sure, see, yeah. when you see character, when you see stories that kind of take this funny take on God, you mentioned it a little bit with Miracle Workers, how, um, you know, it sort of uh, plays on that shows really more about the human condition and how we think about it and not so much commentary about religion. But why do you think God as a character is such an equalizer, whether it's in the, the body of a child or someone like Steve Buscemi, where if we're looking at humanity or kind of contemporary problems through the lens of, well, how would God deal with this, whether it's terrifying or lazy? Why do you think that's something that so many people can use as an entry point to talk about bigger ideas? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, because it, it lets us look at humans in a, in an objective, remote, distant way, you know, yeah. when you're, when you're talking about, uh, God, you're, you're contextualizing humans as being something that's very small and, and powerless. And I think that that's, uh, that's a cool first step on your way to, to making some kind of some kind of commentary. Yeah, yeah, and, and you've seen it kind of pop up with like it seems like I know God wasn't a character in Good Place, but certain that that construct of sort of this uh, higher supernatural plane that holds this degree of power over us. You know, thinking about how we deal with that is such an interesting way to kind of talk about ethics and morality and things like that. It's interesting that it's kind of caught so much steam recently in pop culture. Oh yeah, yeah. Although it's it's always it never fully goes away, and then as that brings me to my number three uh, choice, which is uh, the architect from the Matrix. Yes, yeah. An under an underrated godlike figure. Yeah. Okay, I, I have a question about that. Uh, I don't want to hear you unpack it a little, but do you when you saw? Because does he remind me? Does he make an appearance in the second or third Matrix film? Okay, so here I have to confess something to you, which is. Um, I haven't seen uh, the Matrix films uh, since college. And I okay. saw them very late at night. Yeah. So the only thing I can tell you about the architect of the Matrix is that he looks sort of like Colonel Sanders <laughs> and that he is just surrounded by screens. Yeah. yeah. And I just thought, you know, what a choice. Yeah. You know, I just love how specific it is. And, and um, I just, uh, I, I, I love the vibe of it. I, do I remember seeing it because like you, I don't think I've seen the first one a bunch of times, but I think the only time I saw the second and third one was just in the theater that first time. But yeah. I remember kind of I thought it was cool, it, but I was a little I wouldn't say disappointed, but it was the big reveal where he turns around in the ch in the chair and it is Colonel Sanders just controlling yep. a bunch of screens. 
Were you a little disappointed or did you feel like that was a satisfying turn for the, for the I loved it. Yeah. I loved, yeah. I, I mean, this is a movie that is, is one of the most groundbreaking visual film series ever. They, you know, they, they really truly created certain narrative and filmic techniques that uh, ha- have been imitated ever since. Yeah. And they're revealing their, their big bad, their main antagonist essentially. And it's just this dude in the swivel chair. Yeah, that that was so cool. Yeah, it, it, I totally loved it. Did Did you watch Loki the the new Disney? Still haven't plus? seen it. I still haven't seen it. Did they do a swivel chair reveal? Well, pretty much. I don't want to. I don't want to give it. I don't want to spoil it for you or anyone listening. But there's yeah. a similar type of reveal. But what do you think too? It is about seeing because when we think about whether it's in the context of the Matrix, where it's like this brilliant. Uh, engineer who's crafted this sort of new society or whether it's like this godlike figure what do you think about it is about embodying god in sort of the frailty of a human whether that's a colonel sanders looking dude who like works in the <laughs> it department of whatever yeah. that is or steve buscemi who we all kind of know as like just the, you know this kind of funny quirky guy what do you think about it is about seeing a powerful figure like that in a human form that makes it so kind of disarming and interesting well, there's this there's this quote from the from Genesis, which is uh, uh, so man was created in God's image, and I always think I always thought reading that that it was so funny because if that's true, if man is created in God's image, and God sort of looks like man, yeah, and that's just way too much power to put into the hands of of somebody who who is anything like us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I hope he's better than us. Yeah. Yeah, I can I can barely parent uh, I can barely co-parent uh, a four year old and a six month old. <laughs> yeah, exactly. so putting me putting me in charge of you know six billion humans would be would be a, a really big mistake. Yeah, well, I, I had a an interesting. Have you ever worked with the comedian Brian Stack? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, so I put him on my list because he had obviously he's written on a lot of late shows. I think he's working. With, he might be working with Colbert still now, but I but he's worked in, in for Conan for a long time. Yeah. But he would do a segment on Colbert, and I don't know the last time they've done it, but for a while it was kind of a recurring gag where quote unquote God would show up, and it was basically how they depicted it was sort of their own version of the Sistine Chapel in the Ed Sullivan Theater, or I can't remember the the sure, late, yeah yeah uh, the Late Show Theater, and Colbert would sort of interact with this Renaissance looking God who they had you know that old late night gag where they kind of cut out the chin and it's uh, you know it's a guy's voice, but it was Brian yeah. Stack voicing God, and they would oh, do great. this really funny back and forth with Colbert, but that kind of takes the other twist where it's not. Hey, God is just a dude like us. He's not the stranger on the bus, but it's like, no, what if the God from all these Renaissance art and kind of the classical interpretation had a voice and to to make it sort of this goofball Brian stack, you know, (laughs) dude, who's just kind of chopping it up and trying to figure it out with Stephen Colbert. It works so well. Oh, that's great. Brian stack is so funny. So I actually, uh, I don't think he would remember me. There's no way he would, but the way I know Brian Stack is that I was an intern for Late Night with Conan O'Brien. Okay. Over 20 years ago, wow. or about 20 years ago. And he was one of the writers. And, oh, wow. Uh, really nice guy. Uh, extremely funny, obviously. And I used to just love being able to uh, like watch him on the TV monitor as they were rehearsing uh, the night's material. And it's yeah. just really learned a lot just from watching him and the other writers rewrite bits. Yeah. Um, Truly hilarious guy. 
What, what, what's so funny too about uh, Colbert kind of making God a character on a show. It's like, I was thinking recently, it was like, there was a time when it was like Conan, Kimmel, uh, Fallon and Colbert were all kind of openly Catholic. And so, it, you know, to have all those late night guys have sort of the same religious backgrounds, it did make it seem like it was audiences were more comfortable, you know, kind of slowly transitioning to comedy that involves sort of the, these like religious interjections. Is that just kind of being in comedy circles? Is that something you've observed as well? There's definitely a lot of Catholics in comedy. I think, I think, uh, that, uh, three categories, there's a few categories of people that sort of are disproportionately represented <laughs> yeah. in comedy. Yeah. I would say, uh, as a Jew, we're certainly up, we're, we're punching above our way. <laughs> Catholics, you know, that are definitely another group that I, you know, you definitely in a writer's room will, will meet more than the national average. Yeah. Well, th- it's, it, that's a funny observation too, because obviously they're, they're different faiths, but at the core is sort of this relationship with God that, you know, I don't want to speak for, for, you know, all Jews or all Catholics, but you know, it seems like some of the, the dynamics in both of those religions are a relationship with God that can be kind of fear-based and certainly, Oh yeah. You, you know, what, what is it about that relationship with this existential force that, you know, people are raised with that you think causes them to want to embrace comedy. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, that, uh, there's a lot of, I, I, I speak for, for Catholic comedy writers, but I yeah. think there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, guilt that comes from having a, that sort of God, yeah. which lends itself to comedy. And, uh, I think with, with Jews, it's, it's, uh, you know, it, there's a lot of fear yeah. uh, and terror that comes from, uh, from a Genesis, uh, a sort of God who yeah. uh, at any moment can tell you to you know, just build a arc or cut off part of your penis yeah. <laughs> without yeah. any explanation, really. And, and you and just got to do tight, it. A pretty tight deadline. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the stakes are pretty high if you say no. Yeah. 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 So I think, uh, yeah, fear and guilt are, are, are both conducive, I think, to, to comedy writing. Has it been as a, as someone who, who's, you know, you know, grew up Jewish and, and, and really kind of studying the faith as it, is there, is it kind of cathartic being able to write about God in a way that is, you know, more kind of humor based, you know? As- yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. And I, and, um, I've been, I've been writing, um, short stories and novels about God, my, my entire career. I think this new book, new teeth, it might be, I'm looking at it right now. I have it on my desk. It might be the first book I've ever written that doesn't, overtly include like a character named god um uh although i do have like you know i guess i do i have any i i don't really have any magical creatures in it i've got a no that's not true i have a mutant i have a mutant superhero oh that's a couple yeah yeah. but he's not quite he's not quite god he's just really good at crushing stuff with his fists (laughs) well well to let's talk about new teeth for a minute because you know, as I mentioned before, you're, uh, I mean, you're, we're both kind of young parents and it feels like new, new teeth is really kind of a funny look at it through different kind of perspectives, but some of the anxieties about not just parenthood, but kind of getting older and growing. And why is that something, a topic that you wanted to explore at this point in your career? Yeah, uh, that's, that's, uh, it's a good question. I mean, I think it's really just autobiographical. I think that you always end up writing, um, about what you're going through emotionally. And, and for, for me right now, of course, uh, my days are, are totally dominated by, by these, these two little creatures that we, yeah. my wife and I have to keep alive. And, um, it's really a lot of stories are written out of sympathy for them because 
as as existentially baffling and confusing as the world can seem for for us as adults, you know, living in 2021, uh, it's nothing compared to the the constant bewilderment uh, that a toddler must be feeling at all times. Yeah. Um, so, like that's that's something I try really hard to capture in, in new teeth. Like, there's a story that's a, a noir story, kind of written in the style of, of Hammett or, or Chandler. It's called The Big Nap. And uh, the protagonist is a, a two-year-old detective, <laughs> and he's just, you know, he's hitting the bottle really hard, just trying to <laughs> trying to make some sense out of a world gone mad. And he knows it all. He knows everything uh, le- leads up the chain to Mama, but he doesn't know like much more than that. Yeah, and he's just trying to solve all these mysteries about about his day-to-day life. And uh, so my heart really goes out to these kids, just trying to figure stuff out. Yeah, because we're still because we're still trying to figure stuff out, but. Yeah. But they're but they're really trying to figure it out. Yeah. And and I fear the day when my kids are my age now and realize, man, my dad was just winging it back then. Like he knew oh, yeah, as yeah. little as I did as a child, you know. The the good news is that they um they don't form any memories till they're like about four or so. Exactly. Yeah. So that's basically like exhibition baseball. <laughs> It's you've got so many years where it's like it doesn't matter how many meals in a row you gave them chicken nuggets like they're yeah. never going to be able to call you on it when they're old yeah. it's like nate Bargazzi, the comedian has this great bit where he talks about he didn't want to bring his kids to disney world until they were old enough to form memories because honestly it's kind of a waste of money at that point absolutely you know, you know totally you yeah. can't argue with save the logic that, yeah save that cash yeah all right so what do you got next on your list man so the next one is uh this last one sort of cheating, but I have to tell the story. Okay. Uh, so I shoehorned it in. Uh it's my older brother, Nathaniel. Okay. Who um convinced me when uh I was six and he was eleven that he was God. <laughs> right, so what, you're you're six, he's eleven. That's still yes. for eleven year old, that's a pretty big <laughs> pretty big, pretty yeah, pretty, pretty big undertaking. Yeah. And um but the way he did it was very, very, very deft and, and efficient, which is that he knew what turn signals were and I did not. So we were looking out a window one day and he, he correctly guessed uh, where all the cars were going to turn. Yeah. And uh, I said, how are you doing this? And he explained it was because he was God. <laughs> and that led to a week where he kept demanding uh, various offerings of, of nutter butters <laughs> and Oreos and Hydrox, which I had to bring over to him, you know, in, 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 in like specific uh, quantities and, yeah. and, and uh, presentations. Uh, and I believed it for a while, but then later that week, the Knicks lost again to uh, <laughs> the Pacers. And I was like, I don't think. My brother was really into the Knicks. Yeah. And I was like, I don't think Reggie Miller would be shooting this way if my <laughs> brother were one of the guys. Yeah, well, he could have just been like, listen, I'm teaching them a lesson. I did it. You know, I used to do it through plagues and locusts. And now I do it through Reggie Miller's silky three-pointers. But that yeah, is the, my yeah, rap. But, yeah. but he was like openly near tears, just pissed <laughs> off at Reggie Miller. But I knew. I was like, you, you could do you would be able, you could do something about this if you were a guy. So, so the ruse only lasted the, the, until the Knicks really blew up his spot there. That was it. Yeah, kind of really. That's that's what made it break, break down. That's that's so funny, man. Well, all right. I'm gonna throw I'm gonna throw a couple pop culture gods at you. I want to let you know. Uh, I want to hear your thoughts on them. Okay, the obvious one here is is Morgan Freeman. 
Are you are you a pro Morgan Freeman as God? Because I feel like you could you could just just cast him if you're doing any project. He's just kind of the default. He's got that wise. Yeah. He's compassionate, articulate. You know, yeah, like no, I mean, he's become the yeah. He's he's probably who a lot of Americans picture in their mind as God. Which you know it, that's that's a very like uh, optimistic, hopeful view that it would be you know this this uh high status uh movie star who uh is like beloved and has a <laughs> wonderful voice and and is wise and cool yeah. and yeah it'd be great um, yeah seems like that god is a little bit inconsistent with like how totally uh nightmarish everything seems right now <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. uh you know yeah do, do you have a favorite uh, a favorite movie that kind of tackles God and really I mean obviously we were talking through some of the great kind of characters that that have played God but are there any kind of movies that stick out to you that's like you know that's a really interesting because I was thinking about Dogma I'm putting a, a, Alanis Morissette yeah. on here just because it's she was such an unexpected choice but I feel totally. like it really worked for that movie are there any yeah. movies that kind of stick out to you that are just interesting in their depictions of how religious people at least you know, kind of self, uh, self-conceived God. Yeah. Well, I think, um, the Albert Brooks movie defending your life is, is, yeah. is amazing. I think it's, it's really underrated. And, um, I just, uh, love that conception of the afterlife of, uh, of people trying to justify their, their earthly decisions to this audience of, of celestial judges. I just thought there was something really funny and, and poignant about it. And, uh, yeah, I just think it's really funny. I don't think you really see God per se yeah. in that movie. Just sort of kind of these these uh, semi divine judges. But uh, yeah, yeah, I thought it was great. What, what were your What were your thoughts on kind of like the the existential questions that Good Place was wrestling with? Because it was kind of along those same lines. This sort of performative morality with the basis of well, I better get this right because eternity hangs in the balance here. Yeah, there's there's been a lot of uh, pop culture depictions of of the afterlife that are that, that focus on issues of uh, of morality and you know good versus evil. And um, I always I always was, uh, and maybe it's just because I'm Jewish, but I've always been interested in a kind of uh, amoral universe, a universe that is a little bit uh, less uh, uh, less well constructed. Yeah, like I think that uh, in in the Old Testament. God is so irrational and unpredictable. He's constantly changing his mind. Yeah. He often is, is bargaining or uh, haggling with, with humans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, he, he routinely will get in, will get in fights or arguments with, uh, you know, with, with his own angels. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's, um, he's not somebody who is like designed a perfectly constructed grandfather clock for us to live in. And, yeah. and, and he, and, 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 and uh, I always thought that that, that, that vision of, 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 uh, of God, uh, that one that was completely amoral and totally irrational and anarchic was one that was more consistent with, with, uh, how life seems to go down on, yeah. this, on this crazy rock we live on. Yeah. And it's so, it's so interesting watching these different sort of eras of artists and writers and, you know, musicians, you know, wrestle with that through, through their art. And I think it's really been interesting watching shows that are dealing with, you know, you have shows, like I said, like kind of good place that about the afterlife, but also miracle workers tries to make sense of that tension of, okay, who's sitting on the throne here and how can we, 
you know, wrestle with that idea of who's keeping order when the world around us seems kind of orderless. I love yeah. how you guys looked at it through and the lens. It was yeah. like, well, maybe the answer is incompetence. Yeah. Maybe yeah. the answer is not like, oh, they're judging us. They're, they're, they're punishing us. Maybe it's like, oh, much like many governments we've endured. It's yeah. more just like, they don't really know what they're doing they're yeah. over their heads. And it's a catastrophe. <laughs> and yeah. just trying to make it through one day at a time. And, yeah. and uh, maybe the, maybe some of the, maybe some people are in charge who shouldn't be. And, and uh, maybe yeah. some people got promoted a lot for, for un- unscrupulous reasons. And yeah. Maybe we're just, uh, maybe we're just all kind of in over our heads here a little. Yeah. I always thought that was, that was very funny, but also, um, ideally, you know, the, with that show and with, with a lot of the shows I do, it, it's trying to start from a place of abject nihilism of just like, okay, everything is totally chaotic and screwed. And then hopefully, hopefully by the end of the story or novel or, or TV show series, you can, you, you get a little bit of redemption and yeah. there's a sense of, uh, as, as hellish as everything is, maybe, maybe there's some possible silver lining. Maybe there's some way that we can, uh, maintain hope in, in, in such a polluted landscape. And the cool thing too, about, about your work is it, it disarms some of those anxieties that people have of like, man, the world just seems kind of spinning out of control here. And it also gives them, I feel like a little bit of permission to, to wrestle with it and think about it because, because you're doing it through the lens of comedy. You know, I think it kind of gives people, like I said, that sort of intellectual permission to be like, you know what, maybe I can unpack this because. Yeah, there's a thin line between horror and comedy and and, and, um, a lot of the, you know, scarier Twilight Zone episodes uh, have been parodied by The Simpsons and and Treehouse of Horror uh, uh, episodes. And as a kid, I was always really interested in that, how you could actually tell the same exact story yeah. as a scary Twilight Zone episode, same premise, same plot even. Yeah. And then through just like a slight tonal shift, make it from like the scariest thing in the world to the funniest thing in the world. Yeah. And uh, there's a there's a thin line because both both horror and comedy are dealing with like, you know, really bad stuff going down often. Yeah, it's like the the famous episode of the the guy who is left finally alone in the library only oh, to yeah. break his glasses. Either that's a great punchline or this devastating, horrific existential blow for the viewer, you know? Absolutely. I've seen, I've seen interviews with Stephen King, who's one of my favorite writers. And sometimes when he's describing his horror premises, he's laughing. <laughs> and it's not because he's like a sadist, you know? Yeah. It's, it's because it's the same impulse. It's yeah. the same kind of drive towards, towards anarchy. That, that, that. And a lot, of, a lot of my favorite horror writers... I've written comedy and invite, I mean, you talked about Peel, of course. Yeah. There's like our most famous contemporary example uh, of a hilarious writer who then wrote some really scary stuff that yeah. worked just as well. But also like Edgar Allan Poe wrote a lot of comedy and like Stephen King, I think can be pretty funny yeah. sometimes in his writing. And I know people who like to do both, like, you know, like, like, uh, Neil Gaiman or, or yeah. Shirley Jackson or, or TC Boyle. It's like hard to say, is that comedy? Is it horror? It's sort of, yeah, it's sort of, kind of this hybrid. It's all yeah. kind of hybrid. Yeah, totally. It, it, have you ever considered doing a horror project? I've tried so many times and it always ends up being really silly. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I don't know why. I, yeah, I'd love to. I just can't, I can't pull it off for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. It's something about the way I write it. it never, whenever I try to write the scary parts, it always ends up being just a little bit stupid. Yeah. Well, it does. See, it, it, like, I think anyone who's ever written, you know, anything kind of realizes the challenge of 
you know, when, when you see something on paper, you watch a movie, you're like, oh man, I could tell a story like this. I could set this day. And then you're trying to like, oh dude, there's a reason why a select few are really at the top of the, the game, especially totally. in horror, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like your handwriting, like you can't control your handwriting. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I'm a big fan of horror and I, I definitely, uh, am inspired by it. And like, I, I have tried to really study it cause I think it's helped my ability to come up with like big premise driven hooks. Yeah. But in terms of like execution, I just cannot get anybody ever to feel like, uh, something is suspenseful. Yeah. Frightening. I just don't know how to do that. Are, are you a fan of just going back to the twilight or black mirror? Are you a fan of, cause I kind of oh, see yeah. that as like yeah. a contemporary I mean, so that's another example of the, the, so many of those premises, like on the face of it seem like straight ahead satire. Yeah. Um, and then their execution, occasionally there's elements of humor, but pretty much they just go like, as dark and, 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 uh, intense and suspenseful as they can, which is awesome to see. Yeah. But like, yeah, if, if I was handed those premises, some of which are great and I tried to execute them in a scary way, it would never work. Yeah. If someone was like, okay, so there's a bee that can go up someone's nose and explode and they all kind of come around and it's like a commentary on cancel culture here. It's like, there's no way I can lay on this plate, but they do it, you know? Yeah, no, it's, it's, they really go, they go heavy with it, which yeah. is cool. It's cool. Yeah. yeah. It, there are lots of different flavors of ice cream. Yeah. Well, well, Simon, dude, I hope, uh, I hope one day we get to read your, your first work of horror. I I'd be really interested to check it out. Maybe, maybe a couple more passes, man. And you can, we'll uh, see. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe yeah, another, another watching hard for another 30 years, maybe <laughs> it'll unlock something. Maybe yeah. I haven't seen enough yet. Yeah. Well, well, Simon, dude, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. Definitely encourage listeners to check out new teeth, seriously hilarious work, but also really profound, whether you're a young parent or not, you'll definitely love this book. So listeners go check it out. And miracle workers season three is on TBS right now. Simon, thanks again, man. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right, everyone, that is it for this episode of Listed on the Ironclad Content Network. Hey, if you like the show, I know every podcast asks you to do it, but it really does help. If you like the show, leave a rating and review. I really appreciate it. All right, guys, we'll see you next time.